0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by two very special guests, Brian Balfour and Pascal Levy-Garboa, both of Long Journey. Uh, Brian is also the co-founder of, uh, CEO of Reforge and Pascal uh, at Checker. Pascal, Brian, by, by way of introduction, can you introduce what is Long Journey uh, and how, how you both uh, are involved and got involved?
1: Yeah, so I can kind of provide my perspective and then, and then, but Pascal. So uh, Long Journey really gravitated um, and got brought together by um, a guy named Lee Jacobs. And so we are a seed stage fund uh, but approximately around $30 million in size. We write checks around 500K. But the unique and differentiated thing about us is that we run um, what I like to refer to or explain as like a hub and spoke model. So there's a couple partners that are kind of like the hubs and full-time on it. That's Lee Jacobs, as well as Cyan Bannister, who was previously at Founders Fund. And then we have a, a, a bunch of awesome kind of part-time partners that I consider spokes, including myself, Pascal, John Brook, who is at Mozilla, um, a couple other partners who are the uh, founder of uh, Dandelion Chocolate, and the interesting thing for us is that we all kind of bring our own unique skill uh, set and networks to the table. So, my background is really in kind of product-led uh, growth. Um, Elaine Wary, one of the other venture partners, is really focused on like people and talent, uh, and we all have like our own unique networks that we bring to the table. So. From a founder's perspective, compared to other funds our size and the checks that we write, we just are able to bring a lot more help uh, to the table and a bunch more unique, differentiated perspectives. And so uh, that's kind of the model we are running. I've been um, angel investing with with Lee um, just on the side for a number of years through some other avenues. And so Long Journey Ventures is our first kind of formal fund after the success of that. And uh, it's just awesome to be working with Pascal and some of the others as well. Pascal, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, we're indeed uh, this kind of federation of, uh, not states, but uh, of uh, angels uh, that are helping companies as much as we can. And as for me, I mean, I've invested in 120 companies before bending with the rest and being becoming a spoke, <laughs> as Brian says including Checker, Notion, Trusted Health, and many others, Caviar. So it's interesting to be part of a group of other people that can um, invest their time and energy with the founders that uh, we all bring to the hubs and uh, get different perspectives. And also when we can really help companies, then you know, it's uh, much more firepower than when we did it on our own.
0: And, and Brian, why, why don't you introduce uh, Reforge and and, and and your background as it relates to that? And then um and then Pascal, your your operating background as well. And then we'll dive into some of the, your areas of expertise.
1: Yeah, I think the other unique part I forgot to mention about the spokes is that we're all kind of operator partners. So we're all operating in some different capacity. And so um uh so my history is I I did a couple venture back companies early in my career, one in the social gaming space during the whole Zynga Farmville Playdom that whole craziness, and another one in the education space, but um, I ended up spending a few years at HubSpot, um, as the VP of Growth there, kind of pre and post IPO, uh, helping do two things with them, um, help transition the company to from a marketing and sales led model to more of a product led growth model, and then um also establish new product categories for them. So at the time they only had the marketing product, and now if you're familiar with uh, HubSpot, they have the CRM, the sales hub, the service hub, and so, um, myself and a couple others helped establish. Uh, that uh, division as well. But out of my time at HubSpot led to what I now work on um, today, which is Reforge, which is um, essentially a professional education network for mid-career professionals. So people three plus years into their career, mostly for PMs, engineers, um, and growth professionals at the moment. And uh, I just saw a need from my team. They were asking me every week about uh, their own professional development. And I'd spend hours researching what to recommend them. I just kept coming up empty handed. That made me feel like a terrible manager. It was obviously not a good experience for them as well. And so um, at the time, there was a ton of innovation in the help people get a job space, but uh, not a ton of players in the I've got a job. I just want to kind of continue to go faster, get better on those types of things. And so Reforge, we partner with VPC-level executives at some of the fastest-growing companies like Uber and Eventbrite and Atlassian. We spend hundreds of hours researching with them, helping synthesize um, just years and years and years of hard-earned insights on those front lines um, to pass down to kind of the next generation of leaders uh, to help them accelerate uh, their careers. And so, uh, yeah, we have programs across product marketing, growth, and soon-to-be engineering as well. And um, yeah, so that's been kind of the history of Reforge awesome
2: Pascal I also have an operating background as a founder I started my career at eBay actually in France I started a company a chatbot company before chatbots were cool uh, that's what brought me to the US I turned down Sequoia which I'm not proud of uh, <laughs> for our three I did day. not
1: know that by the way that's I see I learned something about my partners as well <laughs> yeah. that's interesting
2: yeah yeah. Uh, and then, um, you know, we, the, the, that company, we got acquired by um, by Nuance Communications um, and started another one, kind of an on-demand company before on-demand was cool. And that one didn't work. But at the same time, I started investing. I had invested in uh, Checker, among others. And uh, Checker was around nine, nine people and uh, the CEO and I were very close and he asked me, if I could join and um, I decided to join and so uh, I went along for a ride it was a fun ride I stayed there for 4 years uh, from 9 people to I think 400 when I left <laughs> and uh, since then I've been enjoying investing uh, traveling a little bit with my family when COVID allowed us to travel uh, and now I actually live in Europe as you can maybe sound, uh, here because I'm uh, it's kind of dark here, um, and uh, working on starting another company. Actually,
0: so if you were on chatbots before it was cool, and on demand before it was cool, what's the next thing you're you're getting excited about <laughs> before it's cool?
2: I've been actually very involved in the no code community in the last uh, six nine months. So uh, we started in a, a no code school here, online no code school here in France with a few friends, and um, and I'm looking at things with our. Part, leveraging what I've learned at Checker, uh, really about transforming uh, SaaS companies into platforms, which what was what, my my role uh, with uh, the BD team that I led there. And so I'm looking at things um, uh, at the intersection of uh, you know, SaaS and, and fintech companies. That's what, that's what will probably be cool in a few years.
0: <laughs> cool. So I want to transition to to some of the areas in which you guys have expertise in, 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 in where you advise companies. One of them is, is, is go to market. Uh, Brian, I want to start with you. What are some of the top mistakes you see early stage founders make as they uh, put together their go to market strategy?
1: I mean, I think most of the mistakes that this is going to sound like a little too casual to begin with, but uh, I think most of the mistakes just stem from just not having a strategy in general. Um, so uh, a lot of times like reading through seed, Pitches and talking through founders, I see a lot of go to market strategies that's essentially just like a list of marketing channels. And, uh, or, or some other piece, like our go to market strategy is premium, for example, so, some kind of answer like that. Um, but those are really kind of like just a couple pieces of like a puzzle that you have to put together, which ultimately ends up being your go to market strategy, which is at the highest level a combination of like who your target market is how the product fits with that target market, the channels that fit with that um, product and the model that kind of wraps the whole thing and either enables the whole thing like all together. And so like all of these pieces, once again, are all of them are individual puzzle pieces that have to be put together. And the problem is, is if you don't have to have this exactly right at the early stage, but you do need to have a hypothesis about what these things are, because the the whole point is to go execute and then either like prove or disprove these hypotheses. And as you disprove, then you got to like change the puzzle pieces around. Uh, and so like I wrote this long series of blog posts a while back on what I call like the four fits that talks about all these pieces going together, but essentially all of the other problems um, that that we see, whether it's measuring the wrong metrics, hiring the wrong people, uh, for example, all of these things stem from like a disconnect from um, the strategy and those components. So uh, so talking about a lot of those other, other things is like one of my common questions i love to ask companies is like, how do you measure success? How do we know if we're winning, you know, a year from now? And often they just start like listing off metrics, Dow over wow, wow over mile, like whatever it is. And the problem with that is that a lot of times those metrics are just coming from a standpoint of seeing like what other companies are measuring and what, what a, uh, great answer looks like is like, well, hey, here's the strategy. Here's how we're differentiating the market. Here's how we serve the user. And here's how the metrics reflect that. So it's the strategy informing the metrics rather than the metrics kind of informing the strategy. And the same thing kind of goes with the team, right? Um, A lot of times I see people kind of throw up like a general profile, uh, like a growth manager, a growth marketing manager. And I see like experience with almost every type of marketing or type of growth lever kind of listed in the thing. And oftentimes when I see that, what what they're doing is, is what they're trying to do is hire somebody to define the strategy for them. And the problem with that is at the early stage is that if you, the founder, don't have your expertise in this, it's extremely hard to hire somebody full-time that has enough experience that you can afford, right, to to like do this and uh, for you. And um, hiring somebody that's not as experienced to junior Uh, to define the strategy for you can lead to all sorts of problems and all sorts of mistakes. And so oftentimes, there's all of these mismatches on on hiring because the the hypothesis of the strategy hasn't been formed first. And so that's either like a uh, mismatch in skill sets, like you really need a performance conversion optimized person versus more of a qualitative brand focused person, or there's like a channel mismatch, or there's just a growth motion mismatch, right? Like your product-led growth and you're trying to hiring a marketing person like really early. So all of these mismatches occur when you don't have a pretty good hypothesis around this go-to-market strategy and these components and you're hiring against the hypothesis. You're designing the metrics against the hypothesis and not the other way around. And so that's that's fundamentally where like I see a lot of the, the biggest disconnects from.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, when you think about reasons why they don't create... Create the strategy, or why they're trying to hire, is because they often don't understand h- how to even how to even start, or how to think about strategy from from the foundation up. What what frameworks do you recommend they 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 think through? And obviously, it depends on the company, but maybe some examples of of sort of frameworks or things that people should know uh, in order to create a, a successful strategy.
1: So one thing like th- this is this is where advisors can really help and provide like a lot of leverage, like because getting this thing right kind of leads to avoiding a lot of Downstream mistakes. So whether you're not getting or you're not getting it from your investors, like this is like where where the advisors can start to start to take shape. There's um essentially besides the forfeits um framework that um, I described, which helps you think about it at a very high level. If I wanted to think about it more from a bottoms up perspective, there are two primary things that I would think through. One is what we call use cases uh, within Re- within Reforge, and so use cases is a combination that combines the problem the persona the what we call the why essentially the um the motivation the alternative that customers might seek out in other components like natural frequency of usage as well as natural frequency of adoption so like how often is your target customer within the market considering your solution or like the alternative which is very different depending on the type of product and what this does is it like forms it from a very user-first, problem first perspective. And all of the comp- forces you to think about all of those components and how they fit together. Cause like one informs the next, the problem informs the persona, which informs the alternative, which informs the why, and like and so on and so forth. And so, like once you the the challenge here is like when I see startups do this exercise, they tend to list out like five different use cases uh, or six different use cases, like all these things, right? And the reality is, is like at the early stage, you can kind of really only build for like one, maybe two super efficiently. And so um, a lot of times startups launch, they get all of these people in the product, and then they hear about all of these different use cases for the product. But the problem with that is just because the use cases are present, doesn't mean you should strategically choose to focus on them. Um, because that just focusing on all the things that are present kind of just leads you to like go into a bunch of different directions. And so, like that's the first one that we think about, and then the thing that layers on top of that, which I think you've had some guests on um, previously about, is just what is your growth model, and specifically describing your growth model in the context of growth loops, uh, these self-reinforcing cycles, whether it's around virality, content, paid mechanisms, and specifically like what is driving those loops and how they align to the to your use cases as well. And so those are kind of like the two levels of things that, that I like to go through. But I don't know, Pascal. How do you how do you think about this? Because your growth experience is very different than mine. You're you're much more on like the partnerships uh, type of side with Checker and stuff. So, I'm interested for those who 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 might be more relevant to that type of growth model. What do you think is really important to look at at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I think
2: that I mean even beyond the partnerships, what I think is interesting is that what I often do with founders, and I did that with the founders of Checker when I joined them, uh, for example, early on was even thinking about what do they want to accomplish in the, in the in the next year or in the next two years, and I often see when I talk to founders, I often ask them where where do you want to what is the slide that describes where you are at when you when you raise your next round, and then I ask them, okay, now reverse engineer that slide, <laughs> what did you do and why, and I think that you know, it's it's a much more I would say high level way of thinking through what Brian just said, but it's also, it's also very simple. I don't have as many frameworks, unfortunately. (laughs) I think that, but that discussion is very important because that helps prioritize who you hire, why, when. If people tell me, well, I want to get to, I don't know, a million ARR uh, by the end of a year. And I say, okay, how, like who is going to do sales? I mean, not, none of the founders are salespeople. None of the one, none of them want to do sales beyond a few occasional stuff. So I said, "How many AEs are you going to hire? When do they, When are they going to be uh, coming with you?" And so, really thinking through all these metrics and and, and informing the go to market based on the goals helps the discussion with founders, and also helps w- understand whether founders understands what what needs to be done. Or just think that things will happen automatically.
1: The thing I like about that is it just forces you to think in the future, uh, which our our most common bias is when we think from today forward as we overestimate how much we can do or how much is going to get done. And so, if you force yourself to like put yourself in the future and draw that out, and then draw the picture backwards, I think it starts to te- it starts to protect you against that bias and starts to realize some of these other things that I'm talking about, which is like, oh, actually, we, we can't focus on all these use cases, we've got to choose one or two to like, absolutely nail, oh, we can't have 10 different channels at once, because that's going to require x number of different people, we've got to really focus on the one or two most meaningful ones. And so, yeah, I, I like that exercise as well.
0: Brian, to, just to make it concrete, can you give an example of of one or two companies that either you, you've you worked with or, 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 or know of that uh, we're choosing between a few different functions, or we're doing too much, but then had to had to narrow the the focus, or just to make it concrete. When you talk about you know these five different use cases, but they should just you know pick or, or nail one. What what comes to mind as an example?
1: Yeah, so I'll talk from my own personal experience because I don't I don't necessarily have like permission to share a bunch of a bunch of them. So so well, I actually I'll talk about a couple different things. One is like um specifically a HubSpot when we started the this group, we wanted to go after the sales vertical. And so one of the early tools we developed, which is now called Sales Hub, uh, but back then was like called Sidekick, was basically uh, this um, Chrome extension. You got on, you got all these, like we call them email superpowers. You could track uh, people's emails, see like kind of who was email, click all these things sound standard now, but like, I think this was like six years ago that weren't standard then. Um, Like document tracking, like all of these things, like you could get this with like one click. So to a salesperson, this felt like, you know, like magic, like we just like, you know, Mario's mushroom, you know, type of thing. And so the thing is, is that um, so as we went out there, we started acquiring a bunch of users. It was a very simple tool. And then when we saw the users coming in, we had the dynamic that I was exactly talking about. We not only had that individual sales rep uh, kind of using the tool, but we also had like small business owners and marketers using it. And um, like uh, people using it for personal use cases or, you know, education, use, like all of these different types of use cases. And so the challenge at that point that we had to choose was like, okay, well, we can be a horizontal tool and start to serve all of these different um, types of personas across a common set of problems, or we can choose to focus on one or a smaller set of personas and a deeper set. Of like more nuanced problems, like within that within that persona, and this was like a massive strategic debate because we were already at a couple million ARR when this when this happened, and um, we ended up choosing the more vertical use case, and as a result, changing like our monetization model to be higher priced, um, reprioritizing the roadmap of the problems that we solved, all those types of things. But this is a very common flow of like, you put something out there in the world with some hypothesis, you start getting a bunch of usage. Some of it is not what you intend. And rather than keeping going down the path of just chasing whatever feedback is coming in, you have to sometimes hit the pause button and say, oh, actually, like let's take stock of what everything that is present. Let's talk about the pros and the cons and the possible futures uh, if we choose this to go strategically down the path. And then let's go down it. Pinterest also had a very similar use case early on that Casey Winters talks a lot about, which is that they saw two primary use cases in their early product. People who were using the product to like browse and discover new content around their interests, and people who were like planning a project around like planning a wedding or a home renovation or things of that nature, right? Both use cases were present from a similar audience but they very much strategically chose to optimize the product for the discover the content around interest use case and you can see that in their onboarding flow and things of that nature they actually have you select topics of interest right things like that and the reason because is because the project planning use case while saw a high intensity of use while you were planning a project as soon as you were done planning the project you would churn off the product Right, And so to build a huge, large consumer product, which was ultimately their ambition, that was a poor use case to prioritize as the dominant use case in their model. And so they strategically chose the other one. The other one still occurred and happened, but they aligned to the team and the product experience around that. And so that's just like a couple examples that, that I can think of off the top of my head.
0: You were talking about loops uh, earlier. Talk more about that. And maybe if you can give an example of what... Mistakes people make when when they think they have loops but they don't actually uh, have loops. Like what what do people not fully appreciate or or, or have misconceptions around uh, the concept of loops?
1: Um, the biggest misconception is that a channel equals a loop. So I ask like what is a loop and they'll be like oh um like Facebook or you know like Google and um that's that's not a loop. It's a it's one step in the loop right. And so a loop kind of completes the cycle of how you go from. Where you're distributing your message to how the user signs up to what they do in the product that then leads back to the distribution piece. And so um that's the biggest, that's the biggest mistake. And so it starts to combine all of these factors that we're talking about, not just the channel, but um the product experience and also the monetization model, right? So, like a lot of times I see freemium SaaS companies come in and um, they're like, well, we grow, we grow virality. They do something in my product. They invite somebody to the project and stuff. And then I'm like, okay, well, what's your monetization model? And they're like, oh, well, it's it's free up until like two or three users, and then they have to pay. And then the problem with that is like, well, you're adding friction to your growth mechanism, right? And so you're 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 artificially constraining your growth by doing that. And so then the whole conversation kind of ensues of like, well. What, what are other things that we can draw limits around to like convert people so that we can unconstrain you know, uh, we can unconstrain that loop and just, and let it grow and let people kind of convert the other way. So, um, channel not is not a loop. That's the biggest one. And the second thing is like, what is anything can be, a lot of these mechanisms can be either loop or what I, what we call linear within reforge, meaning that they deliver nice incremental results, but not like compounding effects over time. And so, like for one product, it can be a loop, and for another product, um, it can be linear, depending on the product mechanisms and the users and all of these other and all of these other components. And the biggest question to that is whether that self-reinforcing mechanism that you can reinvest whatever the output of the loop is back into the input continues, you know, cycle after cycle, right? And so. In some cases, um, like you just take a viral loop. Everybody assumes a viral loop is like a loop in itself. Um, But in some contexts, right, especially in like work environments, for example, if your product um, really only spreads within within a company, not company to company, then your ceiling, uh, the ceiling of that loop is basically how many people are in that company, right? And so if you're, and so then if you're targeting small companies. Then that actually doesn't act as a loop, right? Um, because you have to keep feeding and signing on more companies through some other mechanism. Whereas other products, like the one we're on now, Zoom, that only jumps within a company, but from from company to company. And so in that case, that's like a real loop that has a super high ceiling and large compounding effects. And so those are probably, um, yeah, those are probably like the two the two biggest mistakes.
0: Uh, when you're talking to enterprise companies and they're trying to address. So what their sort of you know go to market motion should be, or who should be their first customer, you know where in the stack they, they should focus, uh, and and in what capacity? H- how do you typically advise them, or what mistakes do they they typically make, or w- w- what are your thoughts there?
2: Yeah, I can I can start if you want. Um, I would say that um, for this the the first mistake is um, is trying to go either too small or too large. What I what I tend to say to, to founders, especially early on, is to, to get as much feedback as possible early on. And to do that, they need to go after a customer that they can work and that will be like other customers that we'll get next. Um, so if you don't think that you'll get any of the enterprise feature uh, like SSO and things like that in the next 6 to 12 months, and you're going to go and try to get enterprise customers for your product, then maybe this is not how you'll get the right feedback. And I my my goal as when I talk to, to founders is, is, is to help them understand that in a way their roadmap and their go-to-market map is a little bit like um like a, a game where they need to get to the next to the next level to, to be able to continue to play. And so Initially, really focusing on who is the ideal customer for what you have. And then, as you get feedback from that customer and you have a really good value proposition, you get growth in that customer segment, then you can graduate into another segment. And you know we, we often talk about YC having network effects for B2B companies. And the reality is that if you... If you go to YC and you sell to other YC companies from your batch or previous batches, then all of a sudden you have 50, 100, 50, 500 customers. And if that increases your MRR, which helps you with fundraising, but gets you lots of very direct feedback. Um, and that's very helpful for checker, for example. Um, when we started, I remember the first time I met Daniel, the founder, um, I didn't think he was going to pitch me uh, checker i thought that he was going to acquire my uh, struggling uh, company uh, as he was working for a competitor of mine at the time and uh i remember I, when he told, told me about a problem that he wanted to solve i said okay i have eight companies in my portfolio that i can introduce you to uh and that could be co- first customers of checker and they, they, then they went to yc at yc they had you know a few other companies that uh Like DoorDash and Homejoy and others, that could be an Instacart, that could be early customers. So again, that allowed the company to learn to build a product, so that when we got the the master of a of a first world Uber uh, knock at our door, we were able to uh, to tackle that uh, uh, and and sign them eventually, um, which forced us to build the price features, etc. But we were ready because we had seen. And we had at the time maybe fifty to hundred customers, and and the funding necessary to to build what was needed for the next level.
0: Pascal, I, I want to focus on building a BD function w- w- within an org. When w- when should a team hire their first uh, BD or partnerships person? And and what advice do you have for founders as they think about h- when and how to build uh, th- that that organization?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, BD has this kind of weird world, weird, is this weird word in the, in the startup world uh, where people want to hire BD either too early or too late. In general, my advice here is to, is to not hire BD too early, uh, because initially you want to do a lot of sales to really talk to customers, understand what they need. And then at some point, as you look at the go-to market motions, then BD can be interesting because you oftentimes realize, especially with API companies, which uh, Checker was, which Stripe is, which uh, Middesk uh, is, and others, is that you have other types of opportunities as people use your products to build products for others. And I think that's when really BD becomes interesting because it allows you to understand a specific go-to-market motion and see how you can replicate that more broadly. Uh, sales is typically focused on a very much more direct transaction with a, 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 per, a territory that is much more defined, whereas typically BD people are a bit more, I would say, open and creative in terms of a process and understanding of the customer needs. Uh, and that's where it's really helpful. I also, I mean, at at Checker and in general, I recommend BD people to have targets once you understand what what they really do. So you have obviously product partnerships um, and product partnerships, it's harder to have targets. Um, But oftentimes when you have more distribution goals, that's where you really need to make sure that uh, your BD people are producing revenue it will probably be revenue that will be slower to come initially because it takes years to compound, but it's it can be a very high growth lever, as it has been for Checker, for example, in recent years.
1: Pascal, you mentioned uh, I've actually never talked to you about this, so I'm actually excited to ask a question here. You said too early or too late. Do you think that's the timing is similar for all types of companies, and if not, like how do you know when it's too early or too late. How do you think about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes um, I sometimes I hear founders that want to hire BD early because they see that as a hack and they want to sign partnerships because they think that all of a sudden they will have access to other people's distribution um, and they will grow immensely fast, you know, quickly. And that obviously never happens. Um And it's funny because also in Silicon Valley, VCs don't like these models very much. So these are hard to fund, hard to find models. <laughs> and so that's why I don't think that it makes sense to hire somebody doing BD exclusively uh, super early on. I th- I do think that for some types of companies, and especially API companies or what I would call embedded companies, uh, then it can be very interesting because if you're a really... If you're really an API company, you will find people use your products in new ways or in ways that you didn't anticipate. And so, for for example, if I if I look at um, at Checker, we had customers like Instacart and DoorDash, but we also had Zenefits that uh, embedded uh, Checker within their product. And Zenefits, in that case, was not the customer, or at least they were not only the customer. They were distributing Checker to their customers. And so that's a very different go-to-market motion, very different types of sales cycle in a way. And so at Checker, we built a, a, a team uh, to go after these opportunities more proactively. I think that it was good that Daniel, the CEO, was actually the one who was involved in the discussion of the benefits, if anything, because he could understand what these things were, understand what were the opportunities. And so as he was creator. Prioritizing the roadmap, then he was able to, uh, to say, okay, this is not our motion number one, but this is our motion number two, and we're going to invest resources there. So I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier, where you need to invest in BD when you have cycles open for a new exploration. So in a way, it's a BD is a channel, but it's a channel that you test when you have resources available to really understand that loop and build a loop versus just i'm going to hire somebody and he'll figure something out or she'll figure something out
1: yeah i think kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier kind of what i'm hearing is like you know going back to the mistakes of everybody hears like these go-to-market motions of like product led or partnerships or like whatever it is and and think they're all equal and actually there's like many there's a spectrum of many nuances of them and so um You know, like when it comes to partnerships, there's, of course, um, you know, something that was very successful for HubSpot that a lot of people don't even know about is that um, we had essentially what was a value-added reseller program. We called them partners, uh, where uh, we basically signed up a bunch of middle-sized marketing agencies. There's tens of thousands of these in the U.S. alone, and um, and we taught them how to go from a project-based. Um business model to a more recurring revenue based model by selling like content and inbound marketing services, and um HubSpot was the tool that they did that, and then we gave them a percentage of revenue in perpetuity. Um, at the time we went public, that actually made up I think like sixty percent of new revenue or something like that at the time. It was bigger than our than our own internal like sales team. Um. And so there's that type of model where there's like a real repeatable motion of signing up more and more of those types of partners and then reselling their service. Another type of that motion is certainly, I think you mentioned API companies where, like Segment or Zapier, where essentially these partnerships are the product. The product is that you are bringing all of these things into like one central tool. Also, another very repeatable thing which is very different than a partnership than like Uber or Lyft partnering with Google Maps to integrate the part product, yeah. which is much more bespoke thing. And leverages two very different strengths of different companies, but um, it's like very different. And so, yeah, there's many gradients of these types of things. And, and those are like three in this category that immediately jumped to mind.
2: And oftentimes you have different teams. Like Stripe, for example, they had a team for the your, your equivalent of uber and google maps partnership type which is like super strategic one-offs like super high impact but like completely custom and then the rest like the more like um SaaS companies reselling selling uh their product to um non like a fundraising app selling to non-profit then that's a different team like much more uh normal normal and repeatable i would say
0: Pascal, when you're coaching founders on, and they're asking you sort of advice for either on specific partnerships or um, how, to, how to really build out that, that org, besides what we've spoken so far, what else do you tell them? What common misconceptions do people have or common mistakes or, or things that are really important to, to get right that we haven't yet discussed?
2: I mean, I think the last thing is really about the business model and the revenue share. Oftentimes, uh, you op- founders want to optimize revenue share too early. Uh, I tend to, I mean, um, Brian just mentioned HubSpot where they were uh, giving away revenue in perpetuity for these marketing agencies. I mean, Checker has some partners where we, uh, most of our partners on the channel team, we were giving them revenues in perpetuity for the joint customers. And you know, at the end of the day, what you don't want is to f- get your your partners to have an incentive at some point as these things grows to switch to another partner so that they can make another buck with somebody else. And so I think that not having to think about it is good. And that's the value. The value of a ref share is nothing compared to the trouble of a changing distribution and worrying about that. So I think that's number one uh, thing that people... And the second thing is really understanding what's in it for the other side. Uh, so initially, we thought, what's, why do companies like Zenefits or Gusto or others want to partner with Checker, And then you realize, I mean, they, in a way, these SaaS companies becoming platforms, they want to offer more and more services to their customers, the best experience, so that a customer can do everything there. And the best way to do that is to integrate with, with other APIs. Um, and so I think that it's really understanding what's it for them. What's their value prop? Why would they do that? and they typically do it because they want to provide better value for their customers and then if you can make money with it and you know monetize what they have then it's obviously a separate thing but it it doesn't it doesn't hurt i can tell you that
1: <laughs> just plus one on his on on your first comment pascal like i i wasn't part of the decision, but I know that the decision was very controversial at HubSpot to offer in perpetuity because most value-added reseller programs at the time did not do that. The interesting thing that, of course, was only realized in hindsight was that uh, it created much better retention for HubSpot customers that came through those partners because those partners were incentivized to make them successful over the long term on the software. And as a result, actually... Um, those customers had a higher uh, LTV, healthier LTV to CAC ratio than those that came direct. And so, yeah, just plus with like thinking like long-term on that and not optimizing it up front makes total sense.
2: I mean, one of the things that I've learned at eBay in my career is that when you make other people's money, (laughs) some magic things can happen. And eBay was making their sellers money. And I can tell you that eBay grew on its own. Thanks to that. Yeah, I Brian,
0: I, I believe you've been
2: sort of you know
0: leading on, on the, uh, in, in the growth space for for over a decade. Um, w- when you reflect back at sort of what we've learned as an industry over time, or if you were to sort of characterize the different sort of like waves or or phase changes in our knowledge of of how to do this well, how would you sort of characterize um, you know? Uh, just give context to sort of the different phases or waves or or what we've learned over time.
1: Oh, interesting. I don't think I've thought about this question on such a macro level. I think ultimately like the waves are influenced or dictated by two things. Essentially the, the, the large distribution channels that exist and the laws that govern them. Right. So like, as basically new major channels emerge, essentially new companies are always created on those on those channels because typically new laws govern them, and it's smaller companies that figure out these like new rules and laws and how to play into this, um, like growing ocean before uh, the companies who have like embedded themselves in one model before. So that's one thing, but two, just ultimately the general preferences of how people consume or buy um like products and so uh certainly the thing that is obvious now but has been happening for many many years and is not a new thing is that uh individuals prefer to adopt and try and get engaged in products before like ultimately buying them they do not like products pushed on to them like tops down, and so that's like the whole like product led growth motion in, in the enterprise. But that's been happening for I don't know how many years. Like Atlassian pioneered that, and they are like a 20 year old company or something or something like that. So, so those are those are two. Those are two ultimately the things that dictate it. So if I was to almost rephrase the question and be like, if I was in the founder seat, what should I be paying attention to? It's having a very early um, sense or hypothesis about how. One or both of those things are changing. and then exploring how to exploit isn't the right word. leverage them. all right. so leverage is probably the better <laughs> word is the better word there um because ultimately that's how you find it's ultimately how you find um like new waves to ride. Uh, so but ultimately is like y- you know you that the flip side of that conversation is like, is that really the thing I should be taking a bet on with my company? Yes or no. Should I be taking a bet on that new um, that new distribution channel or that changing preference? For some companies, yes. But for a lot of companies, the answer is no. And as a result, trying to like search for that whatever mythical unicorn growth hack or whatever it is that you think is going to fundamentally change the growth of your business, oftentimes, The better thing to focus on is like, hey, actually, you just have a differentiated value prop in terms of the problem that you're solving, who you're solving it for, or the way that you're solving it, or some combination of those factors. And actually, your growth lever is is not the new thing um, that you should be solving for. And you should be really looking to... You should really be looking for like the best practices and focusing your innovation energy elsewhere, right? Because ultimately, once again, we're constrained by time, money, resources, knowledge, whatever it is. You can only innovate in so many different directions, right? Like that is something that I learned with my second company, Boundless Learning, is like we had to have too many new innovations happen in too short a period of time to make that a big business. We got two out of three of them correct but that third one killed us. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, anyways, thinking through your question, like that's where I ultimately uh, kind of navigate my way towards of, of what might be interesting for founders. I'm,
0: I'm curious how community sort of sits in your framework, how, how you think about it in the, in the context of growth. It seems there's been a lot more popularity around, you're not just the idea of minimum viable product but minimum viable audience. People are trying to sort of create a science of community, quantify uh, the, the benefits of it, you know, determine you know how how startups should or should not invest in it and in what capacity how have you thought about uh community and and models of community or just where community sits in within your your understanding of growth
1: um i think community is just like one of those terms that's thrown around a little too willy-nilly and means like many different things to many different people and so um just for example, there's a massive difference between whether community is a core value prop of your product or if community is essentially a marketing mechanism. Those two thing, that one simple thing right there, is probably one branch of the tree, and then there's probably a bunch of other branches of the tree that I haven't like fully, fully codified. But you know, certainly at HubSpot, like community was a marketing mechanism for us. Um, and most important in, and, and so, and so not only was it a marketing mechanism for it, but it played a very specific purpose, which was to help us establish the category definition of inbound marketing. And so we formed the community around basically beating the drum around that message, right? And spreading and trying to define this new category. So strategically in the whole go to market motion, that is the role community. That is the role that the community played. It could have probably played a number of other roles, um, but that's the role that specifically it played for at HubSpot. I think that's very different than something maybe like, I'm trying to think of a total, uh, like Chief, the Women's Executive Professional Network, where where community is the product, right? Um, Or the wing might be like another example, something like that. And as a result, they approach it very much strategically different and so um, i think that's the first branch and then i think the second one of the second branches is probably just um not what community means to you strategically in the business but what community means to like the member members of the community and so just equally like how you want them to serve a purpose for the company um they need you there needs to be a common purpose that they serve like for each other and that needs to be defined in and. And codified. but I see a lot of companies right now like saying like ah oh, like I'm gonna use like one of these community products. I'm gonna throw up a slack group or like something like that and I'm just gonna bring people together with a common trait. And I think that's like one step of many, many steps um, that you need to take for for it to be part of it. And I would just say like since we're we're talking about it right now because it's incredibly commonly talked about right now as like the thing that you should do, which probably inherently means if you're just starting out today, you should not be doing it. Like you need to be like looking elsewhere, right? Because my guess is we're gonna be sitting here a year from now, and maybe like we'll be talking about some like you know token blog post about how community fatigue, how like I'm part of like a hundred different communities. I think that is probably going to happen because um, I think you're asking the question because you are seeing a lot of it, uh, which I which I totally agree with. I don't know, Pascal, was community part of the strategy at Checker or any of the companies you've, that have been in part of your portfolio?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I'm uh, right now, as I said, I'm helping uh, launch an online school for no-code here in Europe. And community is really part of a product because you you need education and you need people that are going to be working alongside you in the journey. And so community is part of what we sell in many ways. We're a magnet for these people. Like, like a school is, a, is mostly a community of other people. But otherwise, in most B2B companies, at least, it's really rare, unless you're in an open source community, uh, to really have a community around your product. Uh, people like your product. You can create a network of people like the, the marketers, the marketing agency that you were mentioning earlier that are part of your community. But this, it's not the same thing. It's more of an ecosystem. Like, for example, I all invested in a company called Adala, which is a, which is a no-code uh, platform. And they have a Slack channel. They have a forum. They have a community, really. But the value of a community is more of the ecosystem it represents and the fact that people are helping each other as the company is you know low on resource and can't put together all the content to help everybody one every one of them individually so but do i think that the community in 5 years or 10 years for adalo if it's successful will be more of a marketing channel as you, as you mentioned earlier or more part of a product i actually believe it will be more a marketing channel in the end um, and that's because people the community will have evolved into more of an ecosystem with people with different interests uh, and working on these different interests on their own to i mean and alongside other people
0: so my last question then is i think what's so amazing about the work that you guys are doing and 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 just the startup ecosystem generally is that is that so many people are are learning in public and we're all building on top of each other's knowledge base Um, and the same conversation in 2010 would have just had you know way less um you know frameworks examples data Etc. And and so I'm curious, especially Brian, as someone who has a, a company that tries to quantify these learnings. What, what do we not get yet, or or what is sort of what are you really curious about, or curious to understand that you know five years from now, ten years from now, given enough data, examples, um, and and people thinking about it, that we might uh, have a better grasp of. I think that's hard to
1: predict, um, because and the reason it's hard to predict is because uh, I think our industry is still in. Um, a zone where um, much of the hard-earned insights are still trapped in the heads of a very small group of people um, and those small group of people tend to be on the front lines of like some of the fastest growing fastest growing companies but those people are also typically not the ones to pause um, and take the time to synthesize codify share it with like a broad group of people and so unless you're one of like the lucky few people to uh, be like working directly with those people then you don't tend to to learn them and as a result there's a lot of reinventing the wheel going on right so like one of the biggest customers of reforge is uh facebook uh and and at the beginning of reforge i was like oh man we have nothing to teach these folks right they have alex schultz and javier like the ogs of like the growth world like people who know 10x more than me And But but you realize in like a big company environment and stuff like that, uh, even a company doesn't sit down and like codify and like pass these things down. And so I think as we do do more of this in different environments, and it's not just codifying and synthesizing this thing, but it's how we transfer that knowledge uh, to others as well in like different environments. And but as we do that, it basically opens up the space for people to solve even more new in frontier type of thing it actually the more somebody knows the more people that know somebody something it pushes us to solve even more unique problems and as a result like this new thing emerges right and so um that's why i think like my guess is actually probably 5 years from now we will still be <laughs> there, we will still uh, be cracked just like cracking the surface and synthesizing all of this stuff because that's also because the technology in software landscape is like growing at a compounding compounding rate as well um 10 years from now like who knows right but by definition as we solve and synthesize some of the more known stuff the unknown stuff we make space for the unknown stuff if that makes sense
0: I, I think that's a great place to to, 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 to wrap founders i highly recommend you work with uh L- long journey we've, we've done a couple uh deals with them and, and, and you guys are, are wonderful partners we've also had uh lee and, and elaine on the show uh, and they've been great ep- episodes as well brian do you also want to plug uh reforge too and any, anything uh, uh upcoming and pascal if you have anything you'd like to plug uh, feel free
1: yeah you can if i blog very sporadically i used to say monthly but i, I can't even hold up that promise now but uh, at brianbub4.com so uh yeah um subscribe there for that and then yeah reforge.com uh we run a few different cohorts per year next cohort is coming up in spring 2021 so if you're a pm engineer or growth professional uh would love to uh, have you part of that
2: yes yeah, so for me i mean um for, you can follow me on the uh, two PASC. it's like two-pack shakur but with an s uh <laughs> And without it, that How did we not
1: start with that? By the way, I feel like we should start with that next time.
2: <laughs> we, we should. We should. We should. Uh, so you can follow me uh, at Tupask so that when when I launch my next venture, uh, that's probably one of the places where I'll uh, announce it. And obviously, you can uh, reach out to Long Journey if you if you have a company that we should l- look into. Don't hesitate to uh, to to DM us on. Uh, on Twitter or on other social media.
0: Awesome. Uh, My guests today have been Pascal Levy-Garboa and and Brian Balfour of of Long Journey. Uh, Brian, Pascal, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.